Everything affects everything else, of course. The fact that I'm sitting here at the piano playing this left-handed two-chord ostinato and I blew the scale. It has something to do with my state of mind or the fact that The fact that there's a microphone stand sitting in front of the piano here that I'm using for the vocal mic. The vocal mic, which gets kind of in front of the right, my right side the right side of the piano, so when I go up there, it kind of is in the way as I get up to the top. I actually just hit it, the stand. So my point being that there's no perfect recording situation. We strive to have this ideal, soundproofed recording environment and the expensive studios, the high-end studios like Abbey Road in London where of course the Beatles recorded have all these amazing technologies in place to create a perfect sort of recording environment where everything is separated sounds are separated you have the perfect mics you have the perfect flooring ceiling HVAC systems so that you can have air conditioning that you don't hear in the mics and all of these things but of course even there all of those things are going to affect your approach to recording. They may inhibit it, the perfection. My setup here is pretty funny and ad hoc. Over the piano, I have the piano lit is up, if you can imagine. I, I think you can imagine that. And it's a grand piano. It's a Yamaha, whatever, G5. No, no, it's not. It's G6 or C6. G6, 6.5 feet in non-metric standard. Anyway, the piano lid is up. And in order to separate the sound of me talking and the sound of the piano, the piano has two mics. I could do more, but two is fine. They're really good piano mics. In order to separate that, I put a comforter over the lid that hangs down in front of me and in the back, and then I have some further, some canvas to cover the front of the piano and various things, even a pillow from... The, the comforter itself, by the way, is from the 1970s. And the pillows are probably from about the 70s too. I found this stuff in my storeroom and just put it there because I wanted to separate the sound of the voice and the piano in such a way that if I make a horrible piano mistake, the vo well, the vocal mic's going to pick that up anyway. This is not a perfectly soundproof situation, but the piano mics don't pick up the vocal at all because the vocal's right in front of me, and I could be playing... 
and piano mics are not picking up me talking, barely audible. So there's this ideal of separation. Separation, of course, I said everything makes, everything is related to everything else. So I think separation, I think of COVID-19 and the separation we're all going through. Six feet of separation, which makes me think of six degrees of separation and all that. So anyway, getting back to my improvisation here, related to everything else, I mean, that's just... At this point, all I have is two chords, a D minor going to an F minor. They're related by this one note, F. At this point, there's no theme whatsoever. Maybe that's it. Let's make that the theme. Now I kind of expanded on the theme there. made a mistake. So what do I do? I incorporate it. noticed I went away from the primary chords there, kind of a, did something like this. And then I went back. That sense of going back is vital in music course you have a verse you have a chorus you go back to the verse Thank you. 
This modulation is different because the second chord is a major, which I'm sure you noticed. interesting. I start playing the theme in the left hand. In improvisation and composition and things of that nature, you make decisions, and then it, of course, affects every other decision down the road. Now, I came in here, I was practicing, not doing very well, I might add, because I feel nauseous. I have this, I think it's this vagus nerve, which makes me think of Las Vegas, but it's spelled differently. Vagus nerve that, if I sleep a certain way, it messes with my equilibrium, if in fact that's what it is. It could be something much worse. Who knows? Anyway, I came in and I practiced and it was going very poorly so I decided what the heck I'll record a episode of improvisations on the ledge and I just started messing around with that chord progression before I set up to record deciding okay I'm going to do something with that base the entire thing on those two chords sort of and then of course I have to set up which is like a 5-10 minute process probably more like 15 but I got to put those the blankets the comforter from 1970 over my piano and the pillow from maybe 75 and you know I got to move this stupid mic over to the piano and put it in front of me in such a way that it will affect my improvisation so everything Everything I do up to the point of starting the recording is going to change my original idea. So I had this innocent idea. And I'm pretty sure I had a melody over that, but I don't remember what it was because I had to go set up. And that's really just the nature of things. Now, if I were in a perfect studio, say Abbey Road, and I came in and I said, guys, just set up for a podcast, me at the piano, microphone, I come in, hit record. Great. So now I've got a perfect situation, except for the fact that now the very perfection of the studio setup is going to affect my mind. It may be intimidating because the perfection almost cries out for doing something perfect. And of course, maybe other people can do that, not me. So I settle for this kind of, well, it happened, so it must be.
When I hit the top note on the piano there and I bump into the microphone stand. I'm also thinking I wish there were one more note so I could hit a D flat up there, but it's not there. It's not perfect. Somehow I ended up in this 1930s style stride piano, or 40s. I don't know what it is. I never got those decades quite straight. One of the strange things about music history is we tend to think of these discrete eras, the classical era, say, of Beethoven and Mozart and Haydn, and then the romantic era of Schubert, Brahms, Wagner, Tchaikovsky, Schumann. And the in jazz, we think of the swing era of whoever, Benny Goodman, I guess the big band era of Duke Ellington and Count Basie, the modern, the modal era of Coltrane, Miles, and Wayne Shorter, and the bop era of Charlie Parker, Dizzy Gillespie, Monk, and so on. And what is my point? My point is that these eras are rarely discrete at all. So when I'm thinking of stride piano, I'm thinking of this style of piano made famous. Where the left hand is bouncing up and... up and down like that and you do stuff like in octaves in the right hand but that style of piano was made famous by pianists like James P. Johnson Fats Waller Duke Ellington as well and I know that that's sometime in the 20s, 30s, 40s, but it wasn't all in one single era, and since I'm not a musical historian, I tend to just say that's in the 30s. Well, 30s, that's going on, maybe. Then there's some other things going on, the big band era, swing, and at a certain point, I lose all sense of when this is all happening. When Beethoven was writing his classic works, they simultaneously were in the so-called classical era era and the Romantic era, and they were kind of the bridge between those. And there's often these bridges in music. But all these things are only after the fact that we come and look at it and say, well, this happened here, and then this led to this, and this went back to that. And my point being that, in the end, I have no idea. You look at what's going on now, musically speaking, and somebody at the New York Times or some August institution like that will say that, you know, this is this era of hip-hop or this era of pop music. And when we look back on it, it will probably reflect just what people were thinking at the time, but it's not necessarily in a larger sense, what was going on. And even historically, if you look at all these things, we have a distorted view because we're looking at it from a distance and we never can truly understand the dynamic of what, say, Beethoven was doing or Charlie Parker in bebop. Ultimately, and I've said this before, it's these individual geniuses 
who are making decisions based on their own various needs, their artistic proclivities, their need to compete with their peers, their need to compete with the past. We know that Beethoven, for example, studied with Haydn, Joseph Haydn, the great classical era composer, if indeed they were calling it that back then, which I'm sure they weren't. And Beethoven, on the one hand, looked up to Papa Haydn, as they called him back then. On the other hand, he was highly competitive with him. He wanted to, in effect, squash him, put him in his place, take all the things that Joe Haydn did, the classical symphony, the string quartet, the sonata, and kick his ass, do it better. And in fact, he did. That was part of his motivation to just outdo Haydn and Mozart. A part of his motivation beyond the artistic need to express the zeitgeist of the age, which was kind of Enlightenment era and post-Enlightenment and Napoleonic Wars and liberty and was just merely trying to outdo his predecessors and maybe to a lesser extent his contemporaries. In his case, for example, I'm pretty sure he knew he was already way better than any of them. So that motivation cannot be discounted in any of this musical style. I know I'm trying to do this all the time. My immediate predecessors in jazz, McCoy Tyner, who just died, the great McCoy Tyner, and Randy Weston, who died last year as well, or two years ago. From the time I was maybe 18 or 19, I was trying to simultaneously take in what they gave me and then go beyond it and outdo them. In the end, of course, that motivation doesn't matter. What matters is the results. So, for example, right there, this innocent little uh, theme that I came up with in talking to you, to me it's three notes. It's going uh, centered around a G, going up to an A flat, back to the G, back down to an F, back to the G. So it's kind of centered a little centrifugal force around that G. And the total theme is one, two, three, four, five notes. But at some point, as I was just improvising there with that theme, I started to play something from the past, Spain. (laughs) 
And I think I first heard this in a song by the pianist Chick Corea on his one of his Return to Forever albums. And it's used by Miles Davis on Sketches of Spain. I think the original theme may be by a Spanish composer, maybe Via Lobos. And I actually don't know. I just know the theme. And this is what I'm talking about. Everything relates to everything else. The fact that I randomly came up with this theme while I was talking talking about something else. And then 10 minutes later, I see its connection to that famous theme. So what does that mean? I have no idea. Now you notice I start to play that theme in the left hand with the chords, original chords. And there is another example of everything related to everything else. At some point in that last segment, I thought, well, I have been playing, everything's been slow, I got to do something fast. But I start to do that, still based on our theme. And what happens is the uh, vagus nerve, Las Vegas nerve, I'm feeling queasy still, and I can't really keep up a tempo. So there you go. And this goddamn microphone stand is in my way. The hell with it. Again with the microphone stand. There, I hit it. Hey, it's Peter Saltzman. If you love improvisations on the ledge, please be so kind as to spread the word, give it five stars, and a great review. And to keep up to date with all of my activities, including this podcast, new albums, performances, and music education, be sure to visit my website at petersaltzman.com.